Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk about the 24 karat weekend, Russian diamonds, lab-grown diamond quality issues, and recent events with banks. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from JCK World Headquarters in New York City. Aw, you're at the office at One World Trade. I love that office. I feel smarter just being here, more professional. (laughs) I know what you mean. It's like it's a really serious office building in a very serious location with a lot of legacy, a lot of history, complicated, tragic, but beautiful as well. And yeah, it's there in the Condé Nast offices. You just kind of get the vibe that you're amongst smart people and people who are doing things that are cool. And I miss going to the office. I, I was hoping to actually swing by there last week, but I ended up canceling my trip, which was all geared towards all the awards um, I missed for the first time in many, many years because my mom broke her leg a few weeks back and we decided I needed to be home and help her get around the house and get to her first doctor's appointment. But I certainly saw all the festivities online. Tell me about it. What was what was the whole weekend like? It was typical. It was fun. It's, you know, overwhelming. Uh, I got a little sick afterwards. So um, I don't know if it was because of all the events or because uh, it, you know, was so much socializing that I hadn't done in a while. It just kind of overwhelmed me. But it was nice. I mean, the Gem Awards were are always a, a beautiful event. And there was a very nice tribute to Stephen Kaiser. Our own Amy Elliott was up for a media award. She unfortunately did not get it, but I'm sure she will at some point. And Michelle Graff, who is a friendly competitor of ours and a friend of ours, did get it. And we're happy for her. Yeah. On that note, I just want to give a public shout out to Michelle and to Amy. Well, I'll give the first to Michelle because she won the award and she's just been a wonderful colleague and cohort in this gem and jewelry space media space for many years and super well-deserved. And of course, congratulations to Amy. She's a star in our hearts. She's a really critical member of our team and we're so proud of her for being nominated. And I do think she is bound to win one day soon. So just congratulations to all of everybody looks so beautiful and I'm jealous that you got to hang out with everybody. Yeah, and everyone looked great. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a really high-class event. The JSA lunch was very nice. There was unfortunately bad news in that he said that was one of the worst years for crime ever last year, which is... Ever? Ever, yeah. He said since he's been there. <laughs> it was really kind of surprising. I mean, it was not like one of the worst years for homicides, thankfully, but apparently, you know, the crime stats were really, really bad last year, which, I, I mean, I was a little surprised by and I'd like to get more detail on. And uh, there was a 24 carrot dinner where Joe Piscopo performed. How was that? That was, um, it was uh, not, you know, he's a talented guy. He did a lot of Sinatra, you know, and he fits in the 24 carat performer demographic, which is usually somebody in their 60s or 70s. Like if you're, if you're not getting social security, they, I don't think they want you to perform at the <laughs> 24 carat clubs. So not allowed. Yeah, you're not allowed. So he's he's 71. And at one point I was before dinner, I was trying to explain to somebody, you know, who was younger, she didn't know who Joe Piscopo was. And like, how do you explain who Joe Piscopo was? It's like, he's like a guy He was was on SNL with Eddie Murphy, but wasn't Eddie Murphy. And <laughs> 
a lot of Sinatra. So there was, yeah, there was a lot of Sinatra. And, uh, you know, we played drums and he's a talented guy. So it was, it was a fun show. It was an interesting show again. And again, it was, you know, 24 Carat Club does not go for the up to the minute acts. You know, it's usually somebody whose heyday was like 30 years before yeah. now. So exactly. 40, 40 years, years even. 40 years in this case. At the, the JVC luncheon, Jeffrey Fisher, who's a, one of the real, uh, I would say, nicest men, a real gentleman, a real mensch, stand-up guy. He got honored, and he got he got very emotional, actually, uh, receiving the award. So that was very nice. And the speaker, who actually made a bit of news, was this gentleman, uh, James O'Brien, who's head of the, the Office of U.S. Sanctions Coordination. So he's kind of the guy in charge of Russian diamonds sanctions. And um, he didn't want to give a talk, but he was interviewed by Tiffany Stevens, head of the JVC. And then later I did a short interview with him. First of all, this guy's a very high-powered guy. He used to, at one point headed the hostage negotiation office. So he freed a certain amount of hostages. So I think he has background in that. So wow. I always like it and I always found it useful. And I don't know why this doesn't happen more often, but when government employees speak and not like the kind of standard BSE like meet the press kind of way, you know, where they kind of give canned answers when they talk and they tell stories and they give background about why they make the decisions they do, even if you don't 100% agree with the decisions, it's just, it's very helpful and makes you feel clued in and part of the process. So he gave a very effective, uh, a bit folksy speech about hmm. U.S. efforts to put sanctions on Russia. He mentioned that when he became head of the sanctions office, one of the things they told him is we'd like to have a little less sanctions. And by the time he was confirmed, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine, and now he's in charge of the largest sanctions package ever done in U.S. history. So he was discussing, you know, what they plan to do with Russian diamonds. Obviously, right now there's this, quote unquote, substantial transformation loophole, which allows Russian diamonds that are cut and polished elsewhere to come into the United States. While they may not necessarily eliminate the legal doctrine of substantial transformation, they do want to put further restrictions on Russian diamonds, including, and this is something he mentioned both to me and on the stage, you know, requiring people to make a declaration that their diamonds aren't from Russia, which will be a big deal. And, uh, you know, it depends on how, how it's enforced and what kind of proof is required, but that would be a big change in the market. And as, as I mentioned, I did speak to him afterwards and, you know, I asked him like, so what happens if people don't have the proper information about Russian origin? And he said, basically, you don't want to lie to customs. You can get into a lot of trouble. So there's a lot of questions as far as, you know, what size cut off. They all want because limiting Russian melee, you know, it's not, it's just not going to be feasible or, or possible or really, I mean, it's not really where they're making the, the most of their money anyway. So, you know, they, they put on these sanctions last year. They made it clear they didn't want people dealing with Russian diamonds. Obviously, they let this quote unquote loophole or however you want to view it, you know, it's, it's out there. And now they're coming in. And they're saying, okay, look, you had a year to figure this out. And now we're saying we don't want any Russian diamonds coming into the United States. And you have to figure out a way to get this done. I don't think it's going to be easy. And I don't think people necessarily realize that this is coming. And this is probably going to be treated very seriously. 
this is fascinating, and I do want to back up a few steps. First of all, what is your sense of how many people are importing Russian goods now, whether they're coming from India or Dubai or wherever? I mean, is it, I mean, because I, I got the sense that the whole industry sort of agreed collectively, no, we shouldn't be working with Russian goods. So how many people still are? Well, you know, you the thing is you can't tell. So I think the amount of Russian goods coming to the United States is a non-zero number. It's probably less than it's been in the past. But, you know, the fact that they're right now, it's perfectly legal to do this certainly makes people say, okay, I'm going to just put whatever people want. And, you know, some, not everybody, some people ask questions, some people have strict policies, some people have ways to monitor those policies, and some people don't. But how will the U.S., how will the customs officials monitor this, enforce this, if a diamond importer can't tell? where their diamonds originated, how on earth is a customs official going to figure that out? Right. Well, if you can't tell where the diamonds are originated, then you probably will not be able to make that declaration and therefore you won't be allowed to import, right? Uh-huh. So you would have to have some kind of proof, whether it's the beer's tracer or a serene system or some kind of paper trail or some other kind of proof, whether it's a written affirmation or, or something, you're going to have to have something that backs up this declaration. Now, people aren't 100% clear what that would be or how that would work, or, you know, they may decide not to even require declaration, but I, it, that seems to be the way they're going. But that seems to be it. And, you know, one of the reasons, and I, I think I mentioned this on the podcast before this is happening, is due to pressure from Belgium, because Belgium has been under pressure to block imports of Russian diamonds. But their argument has always been, well, if they just go to Dubai and then to the United States, then we're losing out. But if the United States market is being closed off, then we're on an even playing field. So that's the thought there. They want to have a, a system that's airtight. And as we've mentioned a lot of times, you know, the technology isn't necessarily there. There's still a lot of Russian goods in the pipeline. But, you know, this is kind of a way of saying, look, figure this out, do something. So it's just a question of figuring out different systems and ways to make this feasible. Because if it's not feasible, and if it just shuts the trade down, or if it's unenforceable, it's not, there's no point to it. So it has to be something Mm. that that there's a good give and take. And yeah, it could, it could, in a way, shut the trade down, and it could be a, a, a huge burden for United States manufacturers. I would not be surprised if diamond imports go up over the next couple of months, as people just kind of want to get in before the before the deadline. But yes, this is coming. They're serious about it. And again, from their standpoint, we've had a year. And when is this coming? Whenever I asked them for specifics, they didn't really provide them, but they want to have a policy to present to the other G7 nations, because the idea is this would be done with the G7, the group of seven, the seven of the largest economies in the world, excluding China. They want to have this done by mid-May to present this, and then it would kind of be phased in, I guess, throughout the year. And it would certainly, it would start with bigger diamonds and then kind of get less as it goes on. This, I forget even his title, but he gave this folksy speech at JVC. What was the reaction? Did you talk to people after his speech? Did you get a sense of what? Yeah, I mean, I think people thought that everything he said was reasonable. I think 
people didn't necessarily get all the implications. I think also a lot of the people who attend JVC or tuned in to JVC are probably more up on some of these things than perhaps the rest of the industry because they get all these JVC updates and they're very, you know, they talk with a lot of these government officials directly. I think the overall message was we're serious about this and this is going to happen and we need to work with you ideally to make this happen. Now, I've definitely heard complaints that people think the State Department has their mind made up and no matter what we tell them that they're just going to do what they want. You know, they have that ability. I think what what's needed is clear set of rules that's attainable, that people understand and can follow. And that's a huge lift, a huge burden. It's possible. And again, in retrospect, you know, this is something the trade should have been working on for the last year because we all knew this would come eventually, you know, especially with, with the Belgian situation. I mean, they looked, it looked bad for the EU that Belgium was just, you know, letting in all these diamonds from Russia. I mean, it just, it just wasn't a, a good look that every other Russian product was banned except for diamonds. This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds mission is to grow and strengthen consumer confidence by providing integrity across the natural diamond industry, offering unrivaled diamond grading and testing exclusively for natural, untreated diamonds. They provide diamond tears with confidence in a report of each diamond's four C's. Every diamond graded at De Beers Institute of Diamonds is also given a unique inscription number, allowing the diamond details to be tracked and viewed on their website. Visit institute.debeers.com to learn more and register for their greeting services. You are very familiar with the topic we're going to tackle next, which is, of course, the complications of diamonds in general, not just Russian diamonds and not just natural mine diamonds, but also lab-grown diamonds, which I'd just like to ask you in terms of the kind of drop in prices and values that we're seeing. Can you chart that a little bit for us? I mean, when did we start seeing prices of lab-grown diamonds fall? You know, there's people with all these charts. I mean, I think it's been a, a pretty steady progression. This was not unexpected, right? I mean, I think people, to some extent, expected this, but you can know something intellectually, and when it actually happens, it's still a bit shocking. I think it's been kind of steady over the last couple of years. There was one story I did a year ago or two years ago where I was looking online for a price of a, a high-end lab-grown diamond, and it was, I think, it started about 28000 and and then like three days later, I looked at it and it was 22,000. Wow. Like, wow. You know, there's been these decreases, mostly more at wholesale than at retail, but they're starting to decrease at retail as well. And, you know, some jewelers are not happy about that. You know, maybe it's time to get out because you can't, you know, even if your margin is better and the margin on lab grown's is still better than that of naturals, you know, if it's a lower price point, you just can't make the same amount of money. And, you know, the standard business model for most jewelers is to sell a bunch of high priced engagement rings a couple of months. And that's kind of what makes your month. But, um, you know, the market's flooded. And the thing is, you know, when people leave the business, they dump goods. So that kind of lowers the price more. Well, this this has certainly been on my mind, and I have to thank you for this suggestion. So I just to back up, every month, JCK publishes a series of special report newsletters. Every month has a different theme, and I am the one doing the bulk of the writing on those. But I sort of dig into some of the issues. Well, the March newsletters were all dedicated to lab-grown diamonds. And so for one of, 
I think it was the second edition that went out earlier this month. I, on your suggestion, sat through a really interesting presentation that Lindsay Rhinesmith and Jason Payne, they're the husband and wife founders of Ada Diamonds, a direct-to-consumer lab-grown diamond jewelry brand based in San Francisco, that they gave as part of GIA's guest speaker series. So their presentation was on the March 1st in Carlsbad, but it was on Facebook and the video is available for people to watch. And it was a really interesting presentation. And it was really focused on quality in lab-grown diamonds. And I learned a ton from it. I don't know if you had been sort of exposed to the kind of information they presented, but I ended up writing a piece that more or less recapped their presentation. Their presentation was very technical, but delivered in a, I found to be a very layperson, easy to understand fashion. So if you watch, and I do encourage people to watch their presentation online. If you go through my article called Why Not All Lab-Grown Diamonds Are Created Equal, and in it, I link to the presentation. So I encourage people to watch the presentation to get the full technical gist of it. But essentially, they talked about their lab-grown jewelers. They've seen diamonds come across their desks over the years. And they said that 2019 was a turning point, that that was the year where they found that they saw a huge ramp up in production. And they just started seeing more and more lab-grown diamonds. And they started seeing just a bigger, bigger distinction between lab-grown diamonds themselves in terms of the quality that they were seeing. And they wanted to put together this presentation to kind of explain that. And it was fascinating because they'd show these examples of lab-grown diamonds that were all in theory, the same color grade, the same clarity grade, but they very obviously look different. And they actually even showed some Reddit screenshots they'd pulled down from consumer forums online like Reddit, where people are posting images of lab-grown diamonds next to each other and saying, why is this one so gray? So Lindsay and Jason, through this really interesting presentation, kind of went through some of these quality characteristics and some of the quality issues you'll find with lab-grown. And I guess the overall message was, as this market has grown and as people have rushed to fill demand, and especially during the pandemic, as demand skyrocketed, as it did for jewelry in general, there was just this great need to fill the demand. And so a lot of growers start to prioritize speed to market. And when you cut corners in the growing process in order to get these goods out the door, you know, there are a lot of things that show up in the diamonds themselves that reflect that speed where you prioritize speed over quality and things like masking agents to help mask different colors that might like the grays that might pop up in these stones when some of the equipment you're using is maybe leaking in it. A lot of this is, and they went through this presentation, they went through what happens if you kind of cut corners in the CVD process, what happens if you cut corners in the HPHT process, the two only ways to grow diamonds. And um, it was all just a really interesting way to understand the marketplace, why there's so many goods, why prices are coming down. And a lot of people responded to that article because it's obviously does implicate what they're investing in their inventory, what they can get out of their inventory. I, I hope I haven't muddied the situation by trying to recap this article. I just watched the presentation. I think you did a solid job there <laughs> Thank you. At, uh, at boiling it down. To me, this is a sign of a, the maturation in a way of the lab-grown market that for so long it's been about, are they the same? Are they diamonds? You know, th they're a different product with a different market, with different characteristics, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that they're less than. It just means that they're different, just like a 
fancy colored pink is different than a standard white diamond. You know, they're just, they're different products that are valued in a different way and looked at in a different way and have different characteristics upon which they're valued. And I think what was helpful about this is it showed some of the pitfalls of being in the lab-grown industry and not taking it seriously, just saying, well, these are all the same and I'm just going to go for the lowest price. Because if you do that, then you get some of these diamonds with these, as they showed, the gray tinges and the blue tinges and the brown tinges. And I do think as this industry matures, it will have different ways to value its products and perhaps even different ways to grade and look at its products because they are different. They're still diamonds. They're just different. It's just a different industry. Do you think, I mean, one of the, I guess, predictions that Lindsay and Jason made in that presentation was that the market for lab-grown is going to bifurcate itself. So we've got the overall diamond market that's bifurcating into natural or mine versus lab-grown. And now the lab-grown market is further bifurcating into, you know, a premium lab-grown product and I guess a cheap rush to market commercial good. Do you see that happening? Do you see that these commercial growers who are prioritizing speed to market, do you see them even able to sustain their own businesses when prices are falling and presumably margins too? Obviously, the, the people who just churn it out, they do so for a good economic reason. So they feel that's the best way to do it. And they may not have the same expertise as, as some of the other people. The, the thing is, right now for lab-grown reports, the trend is to offer less information and to make it cheaper because the price is going down so much that if a report costs $150, in some cases, that's more than the diamond <laughs> you're selling. You know, it's just not worth it for people to want extra information. So you look at like what GIA is doing, they're taking away information and they're, they're making the reports cheaper. So that, that seems to be the general trend. But I would like to see it. I think it's uh, from a consumer standpoint, I think people deserve to have as much information about the product that they're buying. I mean, you could argue growth method and post-growth treatment, that doesn't necessarily matter to people. However, a brown tinge and a blue tinge and a gray tinge, especially if people are complaining about it online, that clearly matters to people. Yeah. I mean, it's funny for this special report series, you know, I, the whole focus is lab grown, at least for the month of March. So I have been speaking to all kinds of people, not always about quality, but that does come up. And I actually interviewed Rotani recently and they sold a $99,000 lab grown diamond, 26 carats, mind you, online earlier in March, earlier this month. So clearly People are buying them and clearly they're not cheap. I mean, 26 carats in natural, I shudder to think what that would be. But it's fascinating to me that, you know, a lot of it is women upgrading their diamond rings, their engagement rings, keeping the original for the sentimental value, but wanting a bigger, flashier stone. And one of the comments that Ratani's head of e-commerce mentioned was that, you know, she just, the size, you know, getting to that size is so much easier now, given our opportunity to buy these more affordable lab-grown diamonds that, you know, you'll go to the grocery store and you'll just start seeing like five characters swinging around as you're like digging through the produce or something and how common that will be. And it's just, I love that image because I just think, yeah, you're right. At this point, you know, they're so accessible. Somebody was telling me they were at a wedding and they noticed, this is somebody, the diamond business, they noticed a lot of big diamonds, you know, big ear studs, big necklace. And he said, oh, that has to be lab grown. It has to be. I mean, yes, right. That's my, right. our first thought. So what does that, what does that mean for like when you have natural five carat studs or 10 or whatever, some mega diamond. It's, yeah, that's a, that's a, a conceivable problem. You said that your, uh, your bank is in trouble, I guess. 
Well, yeah, I'm a really ha have been a very happy client of First Republic, which was made news when Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank had their issues recently. And so I, you know, I don't have really much much in it. So there's not that much worry for me. Obviously. You don't, you don't, you're not over the 250,000. No, you're, you're insured. You're okay. I am well. Okay. I am just fine. In fact, they have my mortgage. So if they collapse and somebody m miraculously forgets about my mortgage, then yeah, I'm just I, fine with that. Just fine with that. Lose the paperwork. <laughs> exactly. But I, I know that wouldn't happen. So I, I guess just as a thought and I think this will be something we have to revisit later because I don't know that there's been a huge impact on our industry. But have you heard of anybody in the trade freaking out over their banking situation? No, I mean, I think, you know, speaking again of LabGrown, I think a lot of those companies probably had accounts at Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, I know Brilliant Earth has a, you know, that's their lender. It might uh, curtail lending in the tech sector, which is already been a bit curtailed. Um, the price of gold has gone way up. Every time a bank fails, the, the price of gold seems to, to get higher. But I think it's something that's concerning for the industry, you know, just for, as far as the overall economic picture, not necessarily for the industry. I mean, the irony is like so many diamond banks have closed or banks have shut their diamond divisions and it was, you know, people just went on, you know, nobody was, was screaming on Twitter or bail us out and stuff like that. So they didn't uh, get quite the uh, helping hand as a tech sector. Yeah. In any case, I, I think we will have to revisit it. I'm I'm heading out to Geneva. By the time people are listening to this, I will be in Geneva um, for Watches and Wonders. You know, I'm really curious to get a read on how people are feeling. The watch business has been flying high for many years now. And, you know, a lot of people invested a ton of money, not only in inventory, but also in expanding their retail showrooms to accommodate all the watch business they anticipated. And I'm really curious to see if the vibe and the mood is strong or if people are getting a little nervous. We'll see. I mean, it, it, it's looking to be a very busy show because a lot of the Chinese that haven't been there in three years are expected to show up. So I think it'll be very hectic and very you know, thriving in the sense of lots of people there, lots of conversations, whether or not people will be in good moods, I, I guess we'll see. But I definitely will look forward to recounting my experiences in Geneva for all of you in just a couple, I guess a few weeks or on the next time we have our one-on-one -on -one podcast. So wish me luck. And yeah, um, when, when are you coming to New York? I know. This is the question. I, I missed out my opportunity. Hopefully soon. I mean, hopefully before Vegas. So we'll see. We'll see how my mom's doing. Wish her luck too. All right. Well, yeah. Wish uh, wish your mom all the best. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, guys. All right. Good talking to you. You too, Rob. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. Any views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinion of JCK, its management, or its advertisers. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.